We'll pick back up in Romans chapter 2, verse 12. That's where we left off. It's very helpful by way of introduction to remember, number one, where we are, and number two, where we're going. So if you remember, if you've been taking notes and following along, that the overall title for the study in Romans is God's Amazing Grace. So we'll see that unfold as we go through the entire book, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. So God's Amazing Grace and the book can be outlined, the letter to the Romans can be outlined with four buildings. And I won't give you the whole outline, but the first building, how many of you remember the first building that represents the first five chapters of the book of Romans? What building is that? The courthouse. So we're in the courthouse together. So that's what you have to remember. We're in the courthouse. Now I say this to you because as we go through, you have to pretend that you're reading this with the intent that Paul has that you're not a believer yet. So some of the things that I'm going to say are things that apply to Paul's argument that he's making that everybody, ultimately, where are we going in the courthouse? Where we're going in the courthouse is that none are righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's building an argument here. So if you hear me say something about righteousness and how no one's righteous by their works, recognize that this is all part of the argument Paul is building in the courthouse. And we read this because we've already understood our own guilt in the courthouse and we've already surrendered our lives to Christ and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We're saved by his sacrifice. We know that already. Most of us do. So read it as it's unfolding. So we're watching this argument unfold. Where are we? We're in the courthouse. Where are we going? In the courthouse, we're going to find everybody guilty before God. Well, who were the guilty people? The first people that were brought were the materialist people, people that don't believe in in anything that they can't feel, touch, measure, experiment on, and they end up worshiping idols or worshiping material things. And they're without excuse, Paul says, because the, the study and the worship of something created leads you to the understanding that there has to be a creator because stuff doesn't create itself. And so there's this heart of rebellion that's actually exposed there in chapter one. The materialist is really not ignorant of God, actually just rebellious against God. Well, then the question is, well, what about people that are understand right and wrong? The self-righteous, that's the next group in chapter two. There's those people that do all those wicked things and they worship idols and they live ungodly ways. And then some of us might say, well, we agree, God, that those are bad people. And we would never do those things. So then Paul has to deal with that, the self-righteous, self-proclaimed good person, which really hits at the heart of a lot of Americans. Just like Paul, I love to talk to people about God. And I think many of you do as well. Remember when Paul would go to a city, he'd been on a lot of missionary miles, a lot of trips to various places. He talked to Jews in the synagogue. He talked to Greeks in the marketplaces in places like Athens. And he had all these conversations. Remember, he'd go into the synagogue and he would have a dialogue from the scriptures about Jesus. And he'd go into the marketplace and he'd have a dialogue with people about their philosophers and he'd talk about the resurrection. And so he talked to lots of people. And as he talked to people, he heard all of their arguments and all of their questions and all of their challenges. And all of this gets infused into the book of Romans because Paul had never been to Rome, right? He's writing from the city of Corinth, and he's not writing to fix problems in Rome like he was to the Corinthian church. He's not writing to answer questions. He's writing to lay out this doctrine 
for the amazing grace of God that everybody in the whole wide world falls into the same category of needing to be saved by the grace of God. There's only two categories culturally at that time. There's Jew and there's Gentile or not Jew. So whether you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, you need to be saved by God's amazing grace. The self-righteous person who thinks they're a good person, actually, Paul dismantles that. They don't have an excuse because identifying right and wrong doesn't save you. It's living right all the time that will save a person. And no one does it. So no one can claim to be self-righteous because we're at best inconsistent. We can maybe do some good things, but we're not consistent enough. We still do wrong, even though we can point out right and wrong in other people. We have that great big log in our own eye, but we're good at seeing the speck in other people's eyes. So he dismantles that. And specifically, who do you think he's talking to when he talks about the self-righteous? You think he's talking about Jews or Gentiles? Who do you think? He's talking to the Jewish people because the Jews felt like they had special privilege with God. They were, after all, descendants of Abraham. The beginning of the Jewish nation, God working through Abraham. They thought, we've got the law, we've got all these rituals, we've got circumcision, we've got the Sabbath day. God loves us uniquely above everybody else. VIP, they thought they had VIP status. They thought they were more valued, more important, and more privileged than everybody else in the world. And they were leaning and resting on that privilege for their security and their salvation. This like being, well, of course I'm a Christian, I'm American. Yeah, right, we know where that'll get you. And so that's why verse 11, that Paul ends that one section with, there's no partiality with God. See, God doesn't play favorites. When we make a judgment, when you and I look at a situation it's very hard for us to separate ourselves from personal bias. You know what I mean by that? We play favorites. We think more highly of some people and less highly of others. And when we make a decision, sometimes we're influenced in ways that we don't even recognize we're influenced. It can be influenced by race or by wealth. You might tend to treat a rich person a little bit better than a poor person or a poor person better than a rich person. But with God... There's no bias at all. Nobody gets special privilege or advantage when it comes to judgment. God is an absolutely fair judge. And even in the Old Testament, he told them in Israel, you have to judge with even scales. That the poor man, if he's done wrong, he's guilty. Or the rich man, if he's done wrong, he's guilty. Justice should be blind in that sense. We know it's blind in other senses. But justice shouldn't look at the person. God is no respecter of persons. I mean, there's no partiality. So the Jew is probably going to challenge that, don't you think? Hey, wait a second, Paul, you can't say that. We're Jewish after all. And then the Gentile would say, hey, wait a second, we never had the law. So some of you had questions about, well, what does God do with those people that live on that island somewhere? By the way, 23,000 people on the island of Bonaire, 26,000 in Fluvanna just to give you an estimate of how big that island is. So here we are. We were with people on the island, and many of them have never read a Bible in their lives. So how does God deal with people that have never read a Bible? They don't know the law of God. They've not grown up in that culture. Maybe they should be innocent. Maybe they should get privileged status. 
So the Gentile would argue that way. The Jew would say we're privileged because we have the law. The Gentiles would say we should be excused because we don't have the law. How do you answer those questions? Are you with me? All right, now we can start in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Now, some of you guys in your Bibles have a parenthesis right there at verse 13, right? So he's going to explain what he means by that. And then he's going to finish out the sentence down at verse 16. So let's read verse 12 and then right down to 16. Let's try that one more time. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So Paul talks about a day of judgment and that that's according to his gospel. And the judgment, maybe you didn't know that. When we talk about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, judgment, the judgment of God, is an essential part of the gospel. You can't have good news unless there's bad news, right? So Paul is kind of walking them through this. He says, there's a day when God will judge, and we'll get there in just a moment. But for now, let's see if we can identify these people. Verse 12, as many as have sinned without law. Who has sinned without the law? Would that be Jew or Gentile? Can we talk about sin for just a minute? Because we use the word sin a lot, and I'm afraid that sometimes we don't really understand what that is. I think there's a concept that sin means that I purposely do something wrong. And that would be it. But the sin simply means to miss the mark. If you're in archery or riflery, there's a bullseye there. That bullseye is perfection. That bullseye is hitting right on the mark. And you stand there with your bow and arrow or your gun and you try to hit that bullseye. Maybe if you're really good, you get it a lot. But more like me, I'm lucky to hit the target, let alone the bullseye. So sin means to miss the mark. Now that can be intentional or it can be what? Unintentional. When my son Jacob was young, I used to throw a baseball to him. He did have the bat, right? And I'd chuck a baseball to him and, and he'd give it a whack. And I tried my best to pitch that thing over the plate for him. Like I tried to give him a good ball to hit, but I always be, oh, come on, dad, it was too low. Come on, dad, it was too high. But I'm human. I was trying to get it in the right spot, but because of the weakness of my humanity, I sometimes would not throw that pitch right where it needed to go. Was I trying to throw it where in a good spot for him? Say yes. I'm not a mean dad. Come on. I was trying to. And that's what sin is. Not just intentionally doing what's wrong, morally speaking, but it's also unintentionally doing what's wrong. And let's take this a little bit farther. James tells us that sin is not just what we do wrong. It's neglecting to do. Hey, now we're coming home with this. It's neglecting to do the good that we know we're supposed to do. James said for him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, what is it? It's sin. It's sin. So sin has a wider application. So there are these people, the Gentiles is who we're talking about. For as many as have sinned without law, will they be excused? What does it say? What will happen to them? They'll perish without law. They're responsible for what they knew or didn't know. So the question is, if they didn't have law, then what can they be responsible for? What did they know? Now hold on to that thought because we'll come back to it. So the Gentiles didn't have the law, but they will still perish. That's what you have to notice. 
and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So the Jews who did have the law, that doesn't give them an excuse. Well, we know right and wrong. Knowing right and wrong isn't an excuse. The law shows you that you do wrong. You're guilty. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're both destined to condemnation, whether you have the law or don't have the law. And you would say, well, Paul anticipates, well, that can't be fair. The Gentile would speak up. That can't be fair. I didn't know right and wrong. Watch what happens. Verse 13. First, he speaks to the Jews, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So Paul says, yes, you Jews, you have the law, and that's a wonderful thing, but that doesn't make you right with God. Just having a Bible, just attending Bible study doesn't make you right with God. There's a lot of people that attend Bible study and don't have a heart for God. Say there's a lot of people unsaved in churches all around the world. Hearing Bible study doesn't make you right with God. What does, Paul says, make you righteous if you're coming to God by works is actually doing everything you hear and you know. And we know we don't. So he says, not the hearers of the law are justified in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And then he jumps to the Gentiles. Verse 14, he says, for when Gentiles, they're non-Jews, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, notice that, by nature do the things in the law, these, although they didn't have the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. How is the work of the law that we're talking about the moral law of God. How is the moral law of God written in their hearts? He says, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or also excusing them. Now stop right there. How many of you have had that battle in your mind where you've done something and you go, oh, I don't know if I should have done that. Now I feel guilty about it. Anybody ever experienced that? You did something and afterwards you go, oh, I should have done that. And even before you were a Christian, right? I mean, after you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you and your conscience is changed in a sense. Your conscience is brought alive. Paul says everybody has on some level a conscience, a knowledge of right and wrong. Would you agree with that? You have to agree with that. It's in the Bible. God knows because we're created in the image of God, right? Doesn't Genesis tell us that? All humanity created in the image of God and our God is a personal God which is why we're personal. Our God is a creative God, which is why we love to create. Our God is a moral God, which is why we have a sense of right and wrong. Even if that sense of right and wrong gets twisted by the world we live in, there's still deep down a sense of right and wrong. Even criminals, even prisoners have a sense, a limit of right and wrong and moral choice I watched the documentary about prisoners in San Quentin. I know I watched some weird documentaries, but people fascinate me. So I watched the documentary about prisoners in San Quentin. In San Quentin, you got the worst of the worst. These are some tough guys, murderers, gangbangers. You've got the Mexican mafia. You've got all kinds of the white Aryan supremacists, all these different groups. And they're running criminal activity from the inside of the prison. They're calling for hits murdering people on the outside. Somebody got me, so I'm going to get them. 
I can't get him because I'm in prison, but I know somebody that knows somebody that can get a message to somebody to go kill that guy on the outside. It's crazy. So then as they're planning these things during their time outside in the gym area, someone says, well, I'll tell you what, let's go after him and let's go after his wife and kids. And then one guy chimes in and says, no, no, we don't do that. We're above that because it's not between his wife and us or his kids and us, it's between us and him. So I say that story to say that even among hardened criminals, there's still a sense of consciousness, even if it's twisted, even if they've justified in their mind murder. And that's what he says here. He says that your conscience sometimes is excusing you and sometimes accusing you. Your conscience becomes your own judge. Sometimes your conscience has to work hard to excuse that wrong behavior because otherwise you feel guilty and ashamed and you don't know forgiveness without God. I think a lot of people live in that place of, I know I've done wrong, but somehow I've played a mental gymnastic in my mind to make it okay. I've justified myself, but yet they know it's a sham. They know it's a cover-up and they still search for forgiveness. I think a lot of people live in that place. But so sometimes our mind or our conscious excuses us and sometimes it accuses us. You did wrong. You shouldn't have taken it. You shouldn't have said that. And But you just go, well, it's too late now. But that conscience convicts you. And so even the hardened criminals have a conscience that convicts them of certain things and justifies certain things. But that conscience, he says, is a law to itself. I've met so many people when I'm in conversations about things like God and righteousness and doing good because a lot of people are good people. And I say, well, tell me something. You're a good person? Yeah, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as those people. Okay, Is there any time that you've ever disobeyed your own conscience? And almost everybody, I'll say everybody, has said yes. At one point in my life, there's been a time when I knew I should have done something, I didn't do it. They've disobeyed their own conscience. And that, Paul says, is enough to condemn them, even without the Bible. Are you following Paul on that? Hope I'm not making Paul's argument more confusing. That's not my goal. But he says, Gentiles, verse 14, they don't have a law, but by nature, they do the things that are in the law. So sometimes people that don't have the word of God do the right thing, right? We have this impression that, well, if if someone's not a Christian, they're just all murderers, thieves, and liars, and adulterers. That no one could possibly do anything good without God. That's not true. How many of you know someone who's not a Christian, but it's a really cool person? Like a really, they do a lot of good. They just have a kindness about them. All right, that's from God. Love is of God, John tells us. And so when God created man in his image, we have a loving God. God created man to love. So sometimes people that don't know God still do good loving things because their conscience tells them it's right to do. Recently, we met a person who never read the Bible before, didn't know the parable of the Good Samaritan, never read the Bible at all, and yet has an internal compass telling her, that unconditional love is right. Never read the Bible. Doesn't know God. Doesn't believe in God. But yet inside, a knowledge of unconditional love. And so I think we have to realize that as a church, that there's some people that ain't Christians that we go, you're a better person than some of the Christians I know. And that's because of the conscience that God puts in at creation. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. The word conscience means with knowledge. There's an internal knowledge of right and wrong. And breaking that is self-condemning. 
And again, that inner debate that happens. Then go back to verse 16 now. He finishes the argument. When is this judgment going to happen? He says, in the day when God will judge. Notice that God will judge. Can I say that again? God will judge. The church doesn't judge. You don't judge. I don't judge. God is the judge. You can't even judge yourself. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, I don't know anything against myself. Paul might say, I'm a good person. I'm doing as far as I know. I'm doing what God wants me to do. But Paul says, I'm not even qualified to judge myself. Do you know, we talked about personal bias. Your greatest personal bias is in favor of you. And that's why you're not qualified to judge yourself because you'll always excuse yourself. It says it's God who will judge. And what will he judge? Will he judge your public life or your private life? It says he'll judge the secrets of men's hearts. You see, the Jews, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, had a really good outward show, right? He said they were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked good. But inside, he said, they were full of dead men's bones, corrupt on the inside. So when God judges, see, that's our other limitation. Not only are we limited in judgment of ourselves because we have personal bias and we always favor ourselves or our group or our community or our race. The other thing is that we don't see what's in the secret. We can't see inside a person's heart, but God can. The Bible says all things are naked and open before the eyes of the Lord. So when God judges, he judges without partiality and without any veil of ignorance. He judges the secrets of men's hearts, whether you're religious or not religious. He knows what's on the inside. So you might be able to fool us. And I'm sure I've been fooled a whole lot. But you can't fool God. And that's what Paul is saying. He'll judge the secrets of men. We tend to think that there's a separation between our private life and our public life. See, I go to church and I wear the right clothes and I carry the right Bible and I do all the right ceremonies and I engage in the right rituals. But when I go home and I have my private time or my work time, that's my life. That's where I can do what I want to do. Not so. With God, it's all or nothing. And so we're accountable. He'll judge the secrets of men. What will the standard be? See, that's the other problem we have when we judge. We can often judge by, especially when we judge ourselves, we judge by another human standard. We tend to compare ourselves to who? Each other. How many of you recognize that's a big problem? I might be a little better than you, but we tend to, well, some people tend to always judge themselves less than because they find someone who's greater than them and they're always depressed and always discouraged because I'm not as good as that person. And that usually involves jealousy and envy and those kind of things. I want what they have. Or if we want to excuse ourselves, if we approve ourselves by finding someone worse than us to judge ourselves by. But what does he say here? He'll judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. He's the standard for judgment. Perfection, according to my gospel. Now, the Jew is really front and center now. And Paul continues this argument. He says, indeed, because they would say, but Paul, we're Jews. Don't you understand who we are? We're the children of Abraham. We have all this heritage. We have all this history. We have the Bible. And we're the ones that are supposed to be teaching morality in the world. He says, that's right. Yes, indeed, you are called a Jew. And you do rest on the law. And that's the problem, by the way, that you can rest. This is the problem with ritualism, that you can rest on your ritual and then you don't need God. We'll get to that in the next section. So hold that thought. You rest on the law 
you make your boast in God, all good sounding things, right? You know his will and approve the things that are excellent. None of this has to do with behavior. All has to do with, I know God's will. I approve the things that are excellent. I'm instructed out of the law. The Jewish confident that they're a guide to the blind. They can tell other people what to do. A light to those who are in darkness. Show other people what's right. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher of babes. They would say, well, we're the ones that are higher than. We're above the law somehow. Because we teach it. That's the real deceptiveness of self-righteousness. Listen, all you self-righteous people out there. The deceptiveness of self-righteousness is in thinking that because you know what's right and you tell others what's right, that somehow you are above the law yourself. Think about politicians. This is not a broad stereotype. We've seen this. Think about police. I used to go to the gym with a couple guys that were state troopers this years ago, 20 years ago in Richmond. Some friends, they were state troopers, and they would go out, get drunk, hop in their car and drive. And they'd get pulled over, and then they'd get let off. And they had come to think that somehow because they know the law and they judge others by the law, that somehow they were immune from the law. And so you're shaking your heads because you know that's not fair. That's wrong. Right. And that's what Paul is saying to the Jews. Just because you teach others, just because you know what's right and wrong, doesn't mean you should be immune to the guilt that comes from breaking the law. You have a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Verse 21 He says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Don't we expect those that teach to be held to a higher accountability? I mean, we've seen in the church pastors fall into adultery, pastors fall into affairs, and you can look back in the archives of their messages and find a whole series on marriage. And you go, well, weren't you listening to what you were saying? And again, you're shaking your heads going, yeah, 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 the, the... James tells us that those that teach the Word, he says, let not many of you become teachers because you recognize that you're held to a higher accountability. You're expected to live according to what you teach. Now, again, I'll say pastors, we're human just like you guys. We're susceptible. But we're also more accountable because we can't claim ignorance. We taught it for crying out loud. We're the one telling others what to do. So there's no excuse there. You who teach another, do not teach yourself. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Malachi tells us that the Jews actually did worse than just steal from their neighbor. Who did they rob? They robbed God. Through their traditions, they managed to withhold the tithes from God. And so they were, in a sense, robbing God. You who say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, through their traditions, they had managed a way to work around adultery so that they could commit adultery, but somehow justify it by their traditions and their laws. That was through the oral law that the Pharisees had. You who have poor idols, do you rob temples? That's a tough translation. Do you commit sacrilege? Again, meaning here are the Jews so opposed to idolatry, but where were their traditions relative to the word of God? Remember, Jesus calls them on that. You worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You hold the traditions of men in a greater spot than the word of God. That's idolatry. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And then he gives them a quote from Isaiah. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Again, written in Isaiah. Because of their behavior, 
with people. See, they had all the truth. People expected them to live by that. Just like people expect you as Christians, like if you call yourself a Christian, people have an expectation of a certain way you're going to behave. You're not going to cheat them. You're not going to steal from them. You're going to be kind. You're going to love them. Again, I know we all fall short of that, but come on. Church, there's a general expectation that we sit in all these Bible studies and it should change our behavior from what we used to be. And people out in the world know that. And that's why I wonder if we ask this question, would we say that in your circle of influence, is the name of God glorified by you or blasphemed because of you? Do the people you work with go, man, that guy, he's the best to work with. He's the best employee I have. That woman, if she ever quit her job, I don't know what we would do. And they know you're a Christian. And you don't have to preach. You don't have to say anything. You know, your greatest testimony has nothing to do with what you say, but everything to do with how you live. You live the gospel. You tell people about Jesus just by the way you treat them and by the way you live at work and on the recreation that you do, the way you live. So sometimes God is glorified, but sometimes people know you're a Christian, but there's nothing on the inside. It's just the thing you do. It never translates into the field, so to speak. And there's people at work, they really don't like you. People at work, they kind of really wish you'd leave. You'd quit because you're a hassle. You complain all the time. You're never happy. And you're just no fun to be around. You know, you're not good to work with. You don't know how to play as a team player. And so because of that, how many of you ever had to try to witness somebody who'd been burnt in church or had a bad experience with a Christian? Gandhi never became a Christian. Even though he believed wholeheartedly in the Sermon on the Mount, he never became a Christian. Why? Because he went to the church and he found racial division in the church. And he said, if I want a caste system, I can go back to India. And that's why he didn't get saved. Because in a sense, the name of God was blasphemed because of the way people lived. And so Paul is saying that to the Jews, actually, rather than glorifying God, you're actually causing his name to be blasphemed because you know you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, but you're not doing it. You're more in tune with your religious rituals. So do you think the Jew is just going to go, oh, we're going to take this sitting down? Oh, yeah, oh, Paul, you're right. You think the Jew is going to just take that casually or you think they're going to be pretty upset about that? There's a reason, hello, church, there's a reason Paul got kicked out of every synagogue he went to because this is what he preaches. And there's a reason they drove him out of cities. Because look what happens next. They would say, Paul, what are you talking about? We do keep the law. We are circumcised. You know, that was goes back to Abraham. This is their VIP pass. This is their demonstration. Hey, we're good with God. Look, we're circumcised. We've been through this ritual. We're okay with God. And that would be their argument. And he says, verse 25, for circumcision, that's what they would lean on, is indeed profitable if... You keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Let's put it in a way we can understand. Let's talk baptism. Can we talk baptism for a minute? How many people do you think have been baptized and really weren't saved? Do you think that's ever happened in the course of human church history? I'll tell you, it has. So if we talk about this in terms of baptism, just getting baptized, going through a ritual doesn't make you right with God. We're not saved by baptism. We're saved by, say it, church. We're saved by faith through God's grace. 
Paul's going to call to the witness stand. Listen, Paul's going to call to the witness stand Abraham, to whom God gave circumcision. And Paul's going to say to Abraham, Abraham, how were you saved? He would say, I believe God, and it was accounted to me for righteousness. Well, when did that happen? That happened after you were circumcised or before you were circumcised? Well, it happened before. He was saved by faith. It's always been that way. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, always been salvation by faith, never by ritual. Rituals and those things can come later. So that's why Paul says circumcision is profitable if you really believe. If you, know, if you want to do what God says. But if you're not a believer, if you don't have faith, then who cares if you're circumcised? Who cares if you're baptized? Let's keep our illustration straight here. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. This is the danger of ritual. This is the danger of, well, I was baptized as an infant. Or I was baptized into the Methodist church or into the Baptist church or into Calvary Chapel. I won't leave us out of the mix. Or I'm a member of a certain group. Or, well, I partake in the Holy Eucharist. And somehow that saves me. And I know that to some people, if you come from a Catholic background, that might be really difficult to hear. But we believe the Bible says that you are saved, not by Eucharist, not saved by baptism, not saved by church membership, not saved by reading through the Bible in a year. But you are saved by faith, by the grace of God. And then you get baptized. And then you participate in communion. And then you read through the Bible in a year. And then you do whatever else. But none of that saves you. Does that make sense? Are we together on that? That's why Paul says this. That's what he's dealing with them. Paul's had to rethink all of this for himself. Verse 26, he says, therefore, he's giving a hypothetical situation. If an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? I mean, take this person who comes to church, goes through the ritual of baptism, and then lives completely apart from anything to do with God. Then take this other person who hears the word of God, says, wow, I should do that, does it, but they've never been baptized. Who do you think would be a better witness for God? The person who hadn't been baptized, but was living for God. I mean, this Paul's making a very crystal clear argument, isn't he? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? His right behavior just highlights your wrong behavior, and he doesn't even have the law. There's people that you know and I know, they're not saved, but they would be great Christians. You know anybody like that? They don't know God, they don't come to church, they reject those kind of things, but man, would you make a great Christian. And in some ways, do better, as I said before, do better than people that do call Jesus Lord. And that's what Paul is making an argument here. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. You see what he's making? He's making a differentiation between outward. What do you think the opposite that's going to be? Inward. So there's a lot of things you can do outwardly. You can wear the Christian t-shirts. You can get Christian tattoos. You can wear Christian jewelry. All that is where? Outwards for other people to see. Where's God looking? He's looking at the heart. So he said, a Jew, he says, you're missing the point of being a Jew. It's not just about outward rituals, but it's about the heart. God's always said, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. He said that to the Jews. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, 
and circumcision is that of the heart. What God is looking for is a heart that is sensitive to him, a heart where the fleshy part, the flesh, the desires of the flesh have been cut away and living for him. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And the Jews, as you know, everything they did was to be seen by men, the Pharisaical Jews, the traditionalists. Everything was about who's watching me, what are they saying about me? And then you're looking for praise from people and you miss the praise from God. 